The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. Morning, be seated. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark's Gospel, uh, chapter 4, we're going to pick up in verse 35, where we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark, which is really an adventure in discipleship, if we look at it closely. And this morning, uh, we're going to begin to look at four miracles that Jesus performed. Uh, I've entitled this message this morning, Jesus' Power Displayed Over Creation. When I think about power, I recognize and realize that all of life, that the sustainment of life, whether it be in the natural order or the spiritual order, requires power. It requires energy. It's necessary for that to be there for life and uh, the cosmos to continue in its set order, that without power, everything would fall apart. That's in the natural order and in our lives well as well. Spiritually, without power, we're incapable, really, of even existence spiritually, let alone thriving and enjoying what Jesus had said that He wanted us to experience, and that was abundant life in Christ. In our technological age, we're well aware that without power, uh, man, we're just dead in the water, right? Uh, Without power, the internet goes out, the internet goes out, and you don't know what to do. Without power, the computer uh, goes down, and you can't function, right? Without power, your smartphone doesn't work, and you can't see how many likes you got on your last Instagram posts, right? Somebody said, I shared a Facebook post this last week that I read that said, I will begin to call them smartphones when it cries out to me from downstairs, hey, I'm underneath the couch pillow, come and get me, right? Power. Well, it's necessary. In the natural and as well in the spiritually, power is necessary. Without it, we we have no hope. And really, there's only one source of power in all of creation. And that is God Almighty Himself, the Creator of everything that we have. Without His power, it would not be there and, and it would not exist. There's only one source of power in your life and in my life. Now, oftentimes we speak of Satan and his power, and I'm afraid sometimes we give him a little bit more credit than he really deserves as far as the power that he is able to exercise. Because his power is limited by God itself. The only power that Satan has has been power that God has allowed him to have or to use. He is greater in us than he that is in the world, is what the Bible tells us. And so we look at these miracles that Jesus begins to perform. And the second one that he's going to display is is Jesus' power over demonic forces. We'll look at that in the coming weeks. We, We sometimes listen too much to Satan and his lies and his taunting at us with his power. We give him more credit than really what he deserves, as I've already said. And he talks a good game, doesn't he? And sometimes we listen to him too much. But the reality is his power is limited. And this morning, as we begin to look at these 
miracles that Jesus performs. Jesus is performing these miracles and Peter is communicating them to Mark as Mark records them to demonstrate to us that Jesus Christ has ultimate power in all the created universe and all in everything spiritually as well. As we begin to go through these miracles, um, they're, they're there for specific reasons to show us the power that Jesus has, that, that God has, but there's secondary application that we'll see them uh, in our lives as we look at these miracles individually. Next week, we'll begin looking at Jesus' power over demonic forces as we see him cast out a legion of demons from an individual. Then we're going to see in the next miracle that Jesus performs is that Jesus has power over health and sickness and disease then and also today. And in the last one, we see him raise someone from the dead. We're going to see that Jesus has power over life and death itself. But these are recorded miracles. And we need to first consider what is a miracle. Can I propose to you this morning that finding a parking spot near the door at Walmart is not a miracle? It might be an answer to prayer or it might be coincidence, but, but that's not a miracle. Um, finding that person you've been looking for all your life is not a miracle. It may be divine intervention and God bringing that together, but it's not a miracle. And we use everyday kinds of things like that to equate them as miracles. We really lessen what a miracle really is. You see, a miracle, as the Bible shows us, is where those things that are in the natural order, those things that were set in place by God are interrupted and they can only be interrupted by God where God directly intervenes and does something that's outside of the ordinary or the natural. To minimize a miracle by taking everyday happenstance really takes away from the glory and the magnificence and the omnipotence of who God is and His ability to intervene as only He can. We sometimes see the word miracle defined or expressed in Scripture as wonders or the powers of God or signs that God does. And I would say just as Jesus performed miracles in His day and God did all through Scripture, recorded Scripture, He still records miracles today. But He doesn't do, or He still does miracles today, but He doesn't do miracles just so that we can say, wow, wasn't that cool? God did a miracle in my life. He always performs the miraculous, ultimately, to bring Him glory and for His purposes. And so let's begin looking at this first miracle as we begin reading along in verse 35 of Mark chapter 4. Mark records for us, On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us go across to the other side. Now I want you to pay attention to this statement here. Jesus is getting in the boat with his disciples so he can get away from the crowds. And he's telling them, hey guys, we are going to get in the boat and we are going to go to the other side of the lake. Keep that in mind. Jesus said, we're going to go to the other side. And if Jesus said we're going to go to the other side, what do you think Jesus meant? We're going to get to the other side of the lake. Look at verse 36. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in a boat just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that 
the boat was already filling. Now, the lake that he's talking about, or the sea, sometimes it's referred to as sea, is the Sea of Galilee. Where Jesus is getting into the boat with his disciples, and where it's located, it wasn't uncommon for instantaneous storms to come off where the wind blew from the mountains and the waves would get kicked up by the winds that came in. And it says here that they were afraid because the water, the waves, were already filling up the boat. In other words, they're in the boat out in the middle of the, uh, in the, middle of the lake. And the waves are coming in and the boat is filling up with water. And they recognize that if something doesn't happen, they can't keep up with bailing the water enough themselves that unless something else happens, they are going to drown out in the middle of this lake. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that where you're in a water, a body of water, and the waves get kicked up. It can be pretty frightening at that moment. And especially if you lose your prop or lose power, it can be a scary thing. And so here the disciples there are with Jesus in the boat and say, hey, the boat's already filling up. But, verse 38, he, meaning Jesus, was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and they said to him, now here Jesus is, he's, he's tired, he's limited by his, his natural uh, fully man, so he's been teaching all this time, the crowds have been pressing in around him, he gets into the boat and he's just tired and he's sleeping in the back of the boat underneath where the rudder would be, under the stern. And they come to Jesus and they say to him, they wake him up, they say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, if I can put a little bit of feeling to the passage here. I don't think they came up to Jesus and tapped him on the shoulder and said, Hey, Jesus, I'm sorry to have to wake you from your sleep, but do you realize that the boat's filling up with water? No, I, I, I think when this was beginning to happen, they're desperate and they realize that they're in a situation that they can't do anything about. And they loudly say to Jesus, Jesus! Don't you even care that we're perishing? Jesus, can you look around and can you see that we're about to drown? We're going to die on this boat that you got us into? Don't you even care? And underline that phrase, key word in that question. Don't you care that we're perishing? Verse 39, And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Now, in the original language, you, you find that when Jesus spoke this, peace be still, and the winds immediately ceased and the, the waters became calm, it's not that they became calm, but it's at the moment that Jesus spoke, the wind ceased and the water was calm. I'm reminded of the creation account in Genesis. In the beginning, and God said, and what happened? It happened. And so here Jesus is demonstrating his power over creation by speaking to the wind. And it's not as if there was some entity in the wind that heard Jesus speak. No, he had created it, and so it's subject to what he would say. And he said, peace, be still, and the winds, the water ceased. Then notice this in verse 40. Second question that we come across in this passage. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Then he asked a second question of them. He said, have you still no faith? 
And it says they were filled now with great fear, and they said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we look this morning and recognize, Lord, your, your, your power over creation, God, I pray that we would be able to look at these questions that are asked and posed in this passage, Lord, and make application in our own life, just as the disciples found them in a situation that they had absolutely no control. God, would you speak to us as to what we're to do when we find ourselves in a similar situation with absolutely no control? First question I want us to look at, there's a series of four questions in this passage. Now I know that the reason this miracle is recorded is ultimately to show that Jesus has power over all creation. We know that. The passage was not given really necessarily to speak of the storms in our life, but we can make application in our life as well, just as the disciples found them in a situation that they had absolutely no control over, that the only place that they could turn to was God we too find ourselves in similar situations. Have you ever had a situation in your life like these disciples? That you had done everything that you could possibly do to resolve the situation. That it was insurmountable. And you recognized and realized, you know, in this situation, I have absolutely no control for the outcome, and I have no idea what's going to happen until the outcome comes. It may be a situation that you may find yourself in where there's disease, the C word. Lately, I've been dealing with a lot of people in the body that have gotten that diagnosis of a C word, which is the cancer kind of thing. It may be a situation that you find yourself in where all of a sudden there's financial crisis in your life. It may be a situation that you find yourself in where there's relational strain and you recognize that I can't control that person. I can't change the way that they are. I can't change their attitude. I can't change their mood. I can't change the way that they are being with me. And you recognize there's nothing I can do. God, what are you going to do in the situation that is completely out of my control? And that's the situation these disciples found themselves in. I think if I could paraphrase maybe what they said when they said, Jesus, don't you care that we're drowning, that we're about to go under, that it might be in our language we might say, God, are you aware of my situation? I mean, God, don't you see that I'm going through this stuff right now and are you aware of where I am in the situation that I'm facing in my life right now? And if you're like me, the line of thinking goes like this. God, are you aware of the situation that I'm in? And then it is, God, do you even care of the situation? Do you even care about the situation that I'm in? And then for me, it kind of progresses to this thing. God, if you really cared, if you really knew, then you would do something about it. God, do you really love me? You see, ultimately, isn't that the question that, that we ask when we're in those kinds of situations? We may not admit that, especially in, in another body of believers that, God, I'm, I'm, I'm questioning whether or not you really even love me, because if you really loved me, then you would do something, and you'd do it right now, right? God, do you care? God, do you love me? Jesus is sleeping in the boat here. We're reminded by the psalmist in Psalm 21 that 
He who watches over you neither sleeps nor slumbers. God, do you care? Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 6. He's speaking there in the Sermon of the Mount, and he, he tells us to look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, nor do they gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And then he asks this pointed question. Are you not of more value than they? Birds, look at them. They, they, they don't hustle and bustle around. And aren't you of greater value to God than that little bird? And, and don't you see how God cares for them? And then in the same passage, he is talking about provision. And, and he calls them to look at the lilies of the field. Take a look at that little lily that I have created. And if you look at it real close, you'll notice that it is incredibly beautiful. Not only is it incredibly beautiful, but it is intricately designed and created. And nothing in all of man's ability to create can ever match the splendor of that lily. As a matter of fact, take Solomon, the wealthiest man, wisest man ever known, dressed in his finest of linen, is not even compared to how beautiful and how well the Father has decorated that lily. Lord, do you care? You ever ask that question? Lord, do you really love me? If you really love me, then you'd show me by doing something. And the heart question that we always need to know is, God, do you love me? When I get down to the question that they're asking, God, do you really care? When I get down to the question that we ask sometimes, God, do you really care? I recognize and realize that what we're asking is, God, I need to know that you love me. Somebody here this morning that needs to know that the Father loves them and cares for them. One of the greatest securities that can ever be given to man is the security that he has a creator, and that creator loves him or her. The Bible talks about God's love for us, and some of you may be here doubting it today. But if you're not here doubting it today, I can assure you at some point along the way, you will begin to question and doubt and wonder, God, do you really care? Do you really love me? Jeremiah recorded this in his prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 31 about God's love as God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah and he reminds us that God's love for us is everlasting meaning that God's love for you and God's love for me will never ever 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 cease Jeremiah speaking for God says hey Jeremiah I want you to tell the people that I have loved you with an everlasting love you see, as human beings, it's difficult for us to experience in a human level sometimes what everlasting love is because we find that, that love is here and then love is gone. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. 
And if you've experienced life in any time, even in the closest unit, which might be family, sometimes love is there, but it's not there the next day, right? Some of you experienced that. But it's assuring to know that God's love is everlasting towards us. Let me ask you to think for just a moment. Have you, someone in your life, whether it's in the past, uh, at some point you really just felt like, Man, they just love me, they just love me, they just love me. And then something happens, you do something, they do something. Somebody else comes along and all of a sudden the love is gone. You ever been there? It's hurtful and it's painful, right? But God's love for us, for you and for me, is everlasting. The second thing we find out about God's love is that it's unconditional. And sometimes in human relationships, the reason that the love isn't there tomorrow where it was there yesterday is because there's been something that's come in that's changed the conditions and now all of a sudden the love is gone. The Bible reminds us in Romans chapter 5 that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What's that telling you and I? That's telling us that God loved us even when we were unlovable in our sin condition. God loved us when we had warts. God loved us when we had crooked teeth. God loved us when we lost our hair. Do you understand what I'm talking about? God's love for you today is no different than it was the day before you came to know Christ. It's unconditional. If you blow it tomorrow, if I blow it tomorrow, guess what? God's love for us will not change. It's not that way in human relationships always, is it? Condition changes. Something happens. Something said that's hurtful, painful, etc. And all of a sudden, the love is gone. And it may even be from those closest to us. Our parents, our brothers, our sisters. Where that love should be there and it doesn't. Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 8. That the love that God has for us is an inseparable love. That there is nothing that you or I can ever do to change a condition, nor is there anything of any outside influence that will ever change God's love for you and I. Listen to what Paul says. You're probably familiar with the passage, but I just want you to hear God say it to you this morning. He says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? And we might add anything else to that list. He says, shall these separate us from the love of God? No, emphatically, in all these things we're more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. Isn't it good to know this morning that God's love is everlasting and that God's love is unconditional? The third thing we find about God's love that's written in Scripture is there's no limitation to God's love for us. In other words, God is not limited in His capacity of love for us. It's a a love, as Paul describes in Ephesians, that that really we will never be able to get our heads wrapped around. But the prayer is that we might be able to know the extent of God's love for us. That it is beyond measure. 
that it's, it's wider than anything we could ever imagine in height. It's, it's deeper than anything we can ever imagine in depth. It's broader than anything we could ever imagine in width. But we need to rely and trust that God loves us without limitation. I may love you with limitation. But God won't. Isn't that good to know? His love is immeasurable. His love is unconditional. His love is everlasting. The disciples asked the question of Jesus, Jesus, don't you really care? This last week I had uh, to help an individual move, relocate. I was blessed to have two fathers in life. How, how did that happen? I have my natural father who went on to be with the Lord about three years ago, but, but I've had another father that's kind of been a spiritual father to me in my whole uh, pastoral time or even before then. And he's really become like a father to me. And this last week, kind of sudden, we had to make arrangements to move him and his wife out of the home that they have been in for 45 plus years and they've got to the place that they just cannot live in that home anymore independently. And so it's kind of a last-minute decision. If you can only imagine being somewhere for 45-plus years in your home and you recognize that this body is failing and I can no longer live this way and now I'm going to have to uproot and move into a place. We moved them over to Remington House over here. and It was on Friday after we got them moved in and I was having some private conversation with Dr. Long and it was an emotional time for them. They'd raised their kids in that house, et cetera, et cetera. Most of you don't even understand what that's like yet, but it'll happen, right? And so we're sitting there with Dr. Long and, and in my mind, I'm thinking how difficult this is for them. And it was difficult for them. But Dr. Long was sitting there and he's talking to me and he recognized in all of the provision and taking care of all the things that had to take place in order to get them, he was just in amazement. He said, I just can't believe how good God is. And if it had been me, I'd been belly aching over the fact that I can't live there anymore. But He's walked with the Lord all of these years, and he's secure in God's love. He knows God's love. He knows God's provision. And even in that, he's saying, I'm amazed. I can't believe how good God is. Unlike sometimes my response in those situations where I have no control. My response um, is sometimes, God, if you really love me, then you would A, B, or C. The second question that's posed in this passage comes from Jesus when he speaks to the disciples. Their first question was, don't you care that we're going to perish? His question is to them is, why are you so afraid? In verse 40, I would add to that, didn't I tell you we're going to go to the other side of the lake? And why are you so afraid? Fear in our lives can either be our friend or it can be our foe. Fear is an impulse sometimes that, that when it comes over us, it gets us out of a situation of danger, right? But on the other hand, in life, I found that fear can be a very paralyzing thing and it can become my enemy. That's where they were at this moment. Jesus says, why are you afraid? 
You see, fear is always rooted in insecurity and uncertainty. Franklin Delano Roosevelt said this, We have nothing to fear but fear itself. Uncertainty, insecurity. I'm not certain how the future is going to turn out. I'm not certain how this situation is going to be resolved. I'm not certain if this situation is ever going to be resolved. I am insecure in your love, God, and so I'm afraid. And Jesus says, why are you so afraid? Isaiah 41 says this, as God is speaking, He says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not to be dismayed, for I am your God. You see, if we recognize that God is who He says He is, and regardless of what comes in our life, and in particular situations that you and I have no control over, there's no reason to be afraid. John tells us in his first letter that fear, while it may be gripping, there is an answer to get us out of that fear, and the answer is to find ourselves in security of God's love. He says this, that a perfect love casts out all fear. So where there's insecurity, when there's uncertainty, you and I have got to recognize that God loves us. And whatever it is that we might be facing right now or what we're facing in the future, it has not changed His love. We may not know how the situation is going to be resolved, but the question is, are we going to trust Him in that? He says, why are you so afraid? And that leads us to the next question. Then, have you still no faith? Why are you so afraid? Do you still not have faith and belief and trust in me? Don't you remember when I healed the paralytic man? Don't you remember when I healed the man with the withered hand? Don't you remember when I drove the demon out of the one that was demon-possessed? Don't you remember all of the other miracles that I have already performed up to this time and you still have no faith? Jamo? Don't you remember when I did this at that point in your life? Don't you remember when you were out of a job and you've done everything you could do and all you had to do is depend on me? It may not have come when you wanted it, but it came, right? J-Mo, don't you remember that time when you had that strained relationship and you were trying to do everything you could to resolve it and there was nothing you could do except to call on me and watch me move in the hearts of men where you could not move to change that so that it might be different today? <laughs> but you know what will happen? Tomorrow, something will come in and because of uncertainty, because of insecurity, you know what I'll be doing? Jesus, don't you care? <laughs> and I have to be reminded of who He is and who's in ultimate control in my life when I cannot control any of those other circumstances. Can I step aside for a minute? Some of us need to learn that there are things in life that are just completely out of our control. As a matter of fact, most things in life are completely out of our control. Uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the 
in the order of, of natural realm and all of that, I can't control a bit of that. And the other thing that I've learned in life is I can't control people either. I can't affect the heart and change in another individual. I cannot affect an attitude in another individual. I can't have any effect. Now the problem is, is when you and I begin to try to control, that's when we really make it a mess. You see, the only thing I'm in control of is my response to people and situations. So whatever comes, away, comes in my way in my life, circumstantially, the only thing I have control over is how I respond to that. The only thing I have control over in relationship is how I respond to that person in a relationship, right? The sooner we learn that, the better off we'll be in life. That we have absolutely no control. And that's why we've got to depend on God to work, to do His work in that. Lastly, the last question that the disciples ask is found in this last verse, verse 41. And they were filled with great fear. Two, two times this word is used in this passage. The, one to, the first time in verse 40 when Jesus said, Why are you so afraid? That's not the kind of fear that they're filled with now. Verse 41. You see, verse 40, there was, there was a fear of anxiety or worry or concern of what's going to happen. Now in verse 41, they're filled with great fear. And that kind of fear is an awe because they're recognizing that Jesus is God and He is all in all, creator of all things and sustainer of all things. They're filled with fear. And then they ask the question, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey Him. It's the same question that if you're here this morning and you've trusted Christ, you've trusted what He has done for you and that He died for you in your place and He shed His blood for the forgiveness of your sin and the penalty of your sin. You had to deal and answer this question, who then was Jesus? It's the same question we have to ask when we're talking about this little baby in Bethlehem. Who is this baby? Who is this child? Who is Jesus? If you're here this morning and and you've never trusted Him, you're going to have to deal with who this person Jesus is. Who then is this that even the winds and the seas obey him i think the best answer to that question comes from scripture itself as paul records this in the book of colossians when we answer the questions that the disciples had this day who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him paul would answer by saying this he is the image of the invisible god he is the firstborn over all creation For by Him all things were created. All things weren't evolved out of some little amoeba. But by Him all things were created and all things are held together by Him. 
All things were created that are in heaven and on earth, whether they're visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and they were created for Him. He's before all things. And in Him all things hold together. Somebody put it this way, that Jesus is the glue that keeps it all together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Who is He? He's God Almighty. Sovereign God. In control of all things that are visible and invisible. In control and aware of every single detail of your life and in the lives of those that you love. In control of His church, His body. In control of those things that to us are completely out of control or seem to be, He is in absolute control. Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.